Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ross. Ahoy, friends. Thank you for tuning in to Truth and Justice. You are listening to the Friday Follow-Up for Season 12, Episode 44, Neighbors. In our pursuit for truth and justice, it has led us around to the interviews of the people closest to the crime scene, the neighbors. This week, we heard from three different neighbors and their recollections of the night. This week brings a lot to talk about. Bob, Janet, and I are going to dive into your listener questions and theories right after this break. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to Truth and Justice. For those of you that are on social media, you know that there was a big to-do over the weekend. For those of you that aren't, you have no idea what I'm about to talk about. But uh, I want to address this briefly now, and it's going to be covered in depth on Sunday. Um, So this week's episode, obviously, is about the neighbor interviews. Pretty shocking information in there, I thought, about what was done and what wasn't done. Uh, And while people started talking about that... Um, listener Ed Logan posted on the fan page, as we've been saying for a long time, we didn't, that there was no sector data for the phone records. Ed posted that the sec- the sector data does in fact exist. And he had an, al- an analysis about it. Um, so it's cu- a couple things that I want to address. One thing is, and I, t- I, I told Ed this in the, in the post, um, but I, I, I want to make clear to you guys, particularly because it, it's out there now that, I actually knew the sector data existed back in December. When, when was our trip to to Palm Springs? Was December, beginning of December. Mm-hmm. Right before that, I had found the the documents in the in the case file, and and obviously let Robert's attorney know know right away. Like, hey, the, the sector data is in here, and I did what I always do if there's something like new, potentially big, which is to tell them like, okay, so here it is. Are you cool with me like breaking this story right now or do you need me to or would you rather I wait? And in, in this instance, as with many instances throughout every season we've done, in case when there's an attorney involved, you know, they said, well, let's let's wait because this could be part of our habeas. So let's wait. The habeas is due in the spring. And so my intention was to let them do their thing, get their experts, analyze it. And then in the spring when it came out, then that's when I would, you know, we would break down what they what their expert had and then discuss it then. Mm-hmm. 
But as a lot of you guys know, there's another group that has access to the case file from another source. I don't know where the source is from. And they also found it and then put it out and Ed gave his analysis. So the good news is it's out there now. So I'm able to actually look into it and analyze it and discuss it. So I just want to get something clear, though. At the beginning, when you said there's no sector data, at that point, were you aware that there was sector data? Oh, no, 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 no. Okay, so this is something that was found along the way. You're not misleading people at the beginning saying you did not have sector data. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, and there's people, obviously, there's the folks saying that, oh, I was hiding, I was lying. When I told you before that they didn't have sector data, as far as I knew, they didn't have sector data. And I feel that I had good reason to think that, considering the prosecution and defense stipulated that they never received any sector data. Right. So they were, I mean, I wasn't looking for it when I found it. It was in a really weird place. It's not in with the cell phone data. It was like in another folder that had nothing to do with cell phone data. And all of a sudden, like, what the hell is this when we found it? Hmm. Um, yeah. So, you know, all through that time, we thought that we didn't have sector data. Well, then I found out we did have sector data. And I've been since then careful to choose my words because I don't want to lie to you guys. But I also don't want to expose the hand of, of you know, any of the lawyers to see what's going to come out of it. Another thing that I want to point out is until this week, I had no idea what the sector data meant or said or what the you – know, I didn't even know how to read. I thought that I had kind of an idea of, of what some of it meant. Turns out I was wrong about that completely. Um, but, you know, the, the, the accusations out there are that, well, you knew what it meant and it proves Robert and Christian are guilty and you were hiding it from us. First of all, I don't believe it does show that they're guilty. We'll talk about that Sunday. Um, Two, I didn't have any idea what it meant. All I knew was that it existed for these couple of months and intended on covering it later on as soon as the the habeas came out. Uh, and of course, you can imagine who some of the same people made like a big deal of the fact that I haven't covered it yet. There's something that you guys should know. And most of you have been around for a long time know this. I know lots of things right now that I haven't covered on the podcast yet. That's always the case. Imagine when I started the podcast when we, on episode one, how much I knew. I mean, I've I've probably have two dozen interviews that I've personally conducted that you haven't heard yet. So there's always a time and place when I'm going to share something. I've got to figure out when to present certain issues. And then sometimes part of what goes into that decision is like this. Well, this is something that is new, big information, and it may be used in habeas. Then I'm not going to step on the toes of the attorneys that are trying to you know work that out for the habeas. So what you need to know if you weren't on social media is that there is sector data, the information's out there, and on Sunday you're going to get a full analysis of that. For those of you that were on social media uh, and saw um, Ed Logan made the post, and, and Ed, Ed did a lot of work doing an analysis. I, I'll, I'll say this, the analysis stated, his title says, New Evidence Shows Robert and Christian Were Traveling Down 74 Towards Becky's House. And then he says in there that he had talked to an expert at some point about some of this. And then he gives his breakdown based on what the expert told him. I would, all I will say for now is I disagree with the conclusion. I also disagree with anyone who says an expert has confirmed that this is what happened. Because that's not even what Ed said in the post. So if you go back, for those of you that are on the Facebook, and read the post, it says, he talked to him the way I interpreted it, uh, and I do have communication with it. I was just I just was messaging him right before we started recording. The way I interpreted it was that 
the expert told him what the columns and things in the report mean. You know, like explain to him what uh, final cell face means and what azimuth means. And so he told him the way I read the report that he explained to him what all of that stuff means. And then Ed took that information and did his own analysis. And I believe he says at the end that he ran it by, I don't know if it was that same person or a different person. We don't know who that person is. And they confirmed that his conclusions were accurate. Um, so that's what Ed said. And it's being taken as an expert has proved their, they were driving down 74. I don't think that Ed is even claiming that. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but based on what I'm reading, I don't think that Ed is saying an expert proved that to begin with. And based on my analysis, I don't think that's true, but we'll talk about that in depth on Sunday. I want to keep the focus today on the the episode at hand, which is episode 44, where we talked about the neighbors. OK, so I see some uh, responses in the chat to ways that you have handled this information and stuff like that and feeling like maybe you treaded over into territory that for some people felt like it was dishonest in some way. Um, I want to acknowledge that. I also feel like from what you're saying, it sounds like there's going to be ample opportunity to talk about that at length because that will be the only thing we're likely to talk about next yeah. week on the follow-up so i want to acknowledge i see you i respect you and i totally understand i'm just going to put a pin in those since i think we're going to have a lot of time and i will happily jump down bob's throat as well if i feel like uh it's merited so <laughs> right. don't let's not worry about that um so do you want to get into talking a little bit more about this episode and the neighbors yeah let's do that great Okay, I'm just going to start with a couple of more general things. Uh, Wendy says, how could a prosecution move forward without contacting any potential witnesses? If an investigation isn't done fully, how can you have a full picture of guilt or innocence? And she's referencing the fact that we heard in this episode that there were people who were very much a part of the initial alarm being raised and all of that that law enforcement did not follow up with at the time. I'm mortified by what wasn't done. In this case, I said last week that I like I'm starting like it, 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 at some point it kind of looked like was there some corruption where they were trying to or like Leclerc was trying to really pin it on or fo- over focus on one thing or another. And it's like I'm leaning more towards incompetence. And then after this week, it's like there's no excuse for this. This is the person that called 911 that lives 300 yards away, has a clear view of the road. Like you you can do from the map that I posted that shows the line of sight to the crime scene. You can also do a line of sight. You can get on Google Earth and like put the little person in there and and show where they can see. They can see all the way down Alpine in both directions. And they never interviewed her. They never interviewed Jim Ellis, who was another person that was right there on the on the scene. So yeah, like yeah, so this this investigation was flawed from the very very beginning. When they didn't take very basic steps, it, like it, it, even the even the questions they ask, like ask very specifically of all the neighbors, did you see any cars? Because I've seen people that have that have said, well, you know, well, her she could only see a small portion directly of Alpine Drive, so she could maybe didn't see a car. You don't understand unless you go up there in the pitch black how dark it is. Literally, if someone flicked a Zippo lighter. A mile away on Alpine Drive, you'd see it because it's so dark and any light is contrast. I don't know if you would see a Zippo lighter a mile away. Please don't. 
I think you would. Please don't paint yourself into a corner. <laughs> you get my point. You know, you get you get my point. It's so dark that you wouldn't have to be looking directly at the car. You can see headlights from a right. long ways away driving away. Right. right. Okay, well, we're going to get into more of that because there certainly are some some questions about uh, about that conversation and about what you point out at the end. Um, Sarah says, uh, "Do we have a timeline of sorts?" Uh, I thought this was great. Um, Sarah, you're always great at such big the big picture stuff. Uh, do we have a timeline of sorts for when the various neighbors arrived at the fire? Did the firefighters completely miss the neighbors who went to guide them, or was it left out of the report? And I know Teresa had asked about this too. You know, we've heard so much about the process of the you know, fire truck being run off the road, which we'll talk about more mm-hmm. in a second with the red truck. But, you know, this idea of like, we've never heard from the firefighters perspective, this idea of neighbors being like, we're going to guide you in. Here's where you should be going. That kind of thing. Yeah, I I don't I don't know because exactly because we don't have those answers. Tim Summerlee told me when I spoke to him, when we drove up to the crime scene after the interview and stuff, he was kind of walking me through like what happened, you know, with Jim Ellis driving behind him and he got out and he walked up and and Jim didn't want to go up because of the propane tank. And then he came back and he said that that I, I believe he said Jim is the one that actually helped the fire truck, like guided the fire truck in. Um, so he had mentioned that stuff from Jim is, of course, you know, it's it's so many years later. It's nine years later when he gets interviewed. Um, Jim gives him more detail. But even Jim doesn't say if he actually helped the fire truck. He just mm-hmm. says he went down. It sounds to me like like Barbara went one way, maybe down Jeroboa, and the Ellis's went the other way down um, Palm Canyon because they didn't know which way the truck was going to come to help guide them. And we know they ended up going Palm Canyon direction, and we know they got stuck at one point after they had been kind of run off the road by that red truck. Um, so the, where, they, where the red truck thing happened is way down the south end of the neighborhood – kind of before they have to make that decision, which route they're going to take. And then after that, they got stuck. And based on what Tim told me, I think that it was the Ellis's that actually like got to the truck, turned around and then drove them all the way up there. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. I I love this from Caroline as well. Could we zoom out on your Google map you posted of the neighbors and include other neighbors we have heard from, as well as where Nick Corline and Alan Gerber and any other friends that lived in that area. I love the idea of having a map that sort of helps yeah. put all of that in perspective in one place. Yeah, I can do that for sure. Awesome. Teresa says, and this I think is in reference to when uh, I believe it was Jamelis who was talking about what he thought, you know, he thought the investigation was a joke and that they released the crime scene after only a couple of days. So Teresa says, what date was the crime scene formally released? It was released on the 18th, I believe. Like, I think they cleared the scene on Monday. They went Guy. back. But uh-huh. they did not leave it secured. That's that struck me huge when Jim said that when he when he just came out and he's like, I'm not trying to offend you guys, but this investigation was a joke. Yeah. I mean, the neighbors noticed it. So I think that's a big. Well, like Jim is like, I can't believe nobody ever talked to me. Yeah. Like that. that that's that's nuts. And uh, and I want to address too back from my previous question. Somebody, I think uh, Mitch in the um, in the YouTube chat says, well, they could have driven down Alpine before they turned their headlights on. First of all, there'd still be brake lights, which, again, would really stand out in that darkness. And also, no way. There are no yeah. street lights. The houses are 100 yards apart, and there was no moon in the sky. It was pitch black up yeah. there. I don't think there's any way anybody could have driven anywhere without their headlights. And those roads are garbage. Right. And the roads no are offense. Garbage. I love it up there. But, like, they're very bad. Yeah, they're They're, they're very bad roads. 
Yeah. You would have had um, to have headlights on to get anywhere. Yeah. Uh, and then Teresa also and uh, there were a ton of questions uh, outside of what happened on Facebook and, and the whole cell phone thing. Um, uh, so I really had to pick and choose. So I apologize if your question isn't in this week, guys. Um, but uh, but but Teresa also says, you know, this reference to the, sh- the scene being used as a training exercise for Riverside County. Is there any like we haven't heard that before? Yeah, I don't know. Which who knows if Jim's even right about that. Yeah, but it could be wrong. I mean, they went back. Odd. We know they went back three days later. We know that, you know, the arson investigator was back a couple of days. You know, they, they went back on a couple of return trips. As far as that being a training exercise, I have no idea if that's just Jim's impression. Jim's memory doesn't seem super great. If you notice, like, uh, there are, through the interview, he's, like, asking his wife a lot, like, what street. You know, he's he's been living in that neighborhood for 20 years. And he's like, what's the name of that street that's right next, you know, the next street mm-hmm. up? And there's a lot of that in the interview. So, yeah, I don't know. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Any additional documentation on on 911 callers? Uh, Could we see, like, is there a dispatch log? Um, Steve Smith, I know, was wondering about that, too. I don't know why I just said your full name, Steve. I usually just put people's uh, first names. Um, are there are there sheriff's dispatch logs for the entire day? Is that stuff there out are, there and, and available? There are, and that's stuff that we have. And, and Janet, you and I have talked about already some of that. One of those things that yeah. we've covered but we haven't talked about on the podcast yet, and that stuff's coming. Um, yeah, as far as the right. 911 calls, I've got some information on some other callers that I need to verify Calling about the fire specifically. About the fire specifically, yeah. but then there were also other nine one one one. There were also nine one one calls to the neighborhood that within hours of this that night. Right, and then uh, okay, so let's talk a little bit more about uh, Barbara's call. Is uh, Lauren wants to know is there a recording of Barbara's call? I have not. There's nothing in the file. The nine one one recordings. It seems like I looked for. I, I tried to get the. I, I I know for a fact that I requested them in an open records request, and they didn't. They denied me. Because usually the 911 calls would be retained. But yeah, I haven't heard them or seen them anywhere and have been unable to get them. Okay. Uh, Stacy, just shouting you out for also questioning what the logical reason would be to not question the person who's likely the first 911 call. Uh, she says it seems like a huge miss. Kristen says, uh, was Barbara Wright's interview transcripts, were the, were the transcripts turned over to the defense before trial? Um, and if not, would that be considered a Brady violation? And yeah, Kathy they were in the, they were in the, dis- what I'm working from is the discovery file. So, okay. so the state did have that. I think somebody had also mentioned like it had that, that interview seemed like it happened. So, so soon before the trial that like, if that would, would the defense have had enough time to really even do anything with the information that was in that interview before the trial? Was that fair or that kind of thing? I think they would. I mean, I don't think the defense did a great job of going through it. I, I mean, 
case in point, as I mentioned in the intro here, the sector data was in the discovery file and they didn't know it was there. They stipulated to it not being there, you know, and, and there's all kinds of speculation one way or the other, like about that, that particular thing that oh, you know, of course, I've seen. Well, I think the prosecution didn't know it was there, but the defense definitely did know it was there, which is ridiculous. Um, what we know from the state is that they requested it, they received it, they analyzed it, and then they put it in the discovery file, physically put it in the discovery file. It's harder to believe they didn't know it was there. Um, the defense, could they have known it was there? I don't know. But it, for them, it was just it, one of thousands of pages, which took us months to find that it was, that it was even in the, in the file. Um, point being it, they may not have understood the relevance of it. They may not have reviewed it. There's who knows. Okay. Uh, Chris wants to know what kind of car Barbara drove. I don't know. Did she, didn't, I don't think she said in the interview. I don't know I don't what remember. she said. In there. I don't remember her mm-hmm. saying mm-hmm. she did. And then um, Chris followed up with, did detectives reach out to neighbors at the time? Because I think Chris's perception is that it seems like they only talked to the neighbors who reached out to them. They reached out to, um, gosh, I'm having a hard time drawing the name right now. Was it Steve Russell? The guy that, Mm -hmm. um, I think it was in Sexton's report, says that it came up and had a black eye because he had eye surgery. And I think we heard Jim or Randy, one of them mentioned him. Mm -hmm. It was Randy, who was the one that was interviewed like at that time because he was a sheriff. He was, he worked for the, the department. Um, they talked to Sharon Coleman, um, which isn't, you know, and I'll play that as a bonus at some point, but it, but it's just a lot of speculation. She wasn't there. She didn't get back. I think she had went to the casino or something. Didn't get back that night until two o'clock in the morning. Uh, Carissa Farley, uh, we've heard from, um, so they like people who they had like the names of that they knew were there. They talked to most of them or at least some of them. And then if they talked to a neighbor and they said, you should talk to this person, they did. There's a person that um, lives down at the corner of of Jeroboa and Alpine they interviewed. But you get a lot of, you know, like Steve Russell's too. Did I, I think I might have already played Steve Russell's interview. He's the one that just is really – no, maybe I didn't play it. Because he's just like telling them how to investigate. And the sad part is – He's, he's like, you should talk to this person and you should talk to this person and you should talk to this person. You should check back there for tracks because there's trails back there and you should do this and you should do that. They didn't do any of it. Um, uh, I wish he had been investigating the case instead of them. Um, but yeah, so they, but, um, but they missed a okay. lot. They didn't, again, yeah. the Barbara, and somebody had said in the YouTube chat that she was, the Barbara Wright was the first 911 caller. She wasn't. Um, I believe Tim Summerlee's 911 call was before her. It might have been right after. But there was three calls, at least three calls to the fire department directly mm-hmm. prior to this, uh, right. prior to her call. As long as we've, we're talking about other neighbors, I have a little uh, cluster of uh, questions about other neighbors that I'll just um, jump to real quickly. Uh, Rena says, uh, is wondering about Brian Stowe or Stow um, as a neighbor that uh, that that uh, Jim had uh, issues or disagreements with. Was he questioned? Was he discussed? talk to at any point who brian stow brian stowe i don't think so um harpo the clown uh no and that's a frustrating one i think three different neighbors i know sharon coleman yeah i think randy paulson i think carissa i think uh jackie Uh, 
Grosjean. Yeah, I the think, teacher. Ma- I, yeah, Jackie. Maggie yeah. Montoya. Oh, yeah, Maggie. Yeah, Maggie definitely brought him up. I think they all said you need to talk to Harpo because he actually knew them. Right. And only one of them like gave him the full name, his full yeah. name. Yeah. He lived right there, one of the closest mm-hmm. house to them. And mm-hmm. I don't see anywhere in the police file. And I've searched every which way to Sunday to try. I've, I've searched Harpo. I've searched Steve was his first name. I've tried Steven, two different spellings of Steven, his last name, different spellings of his last name. It doesn't look like they ever interviewed him, which again, like what the hell? They He was the one person everybody said knew them, like mm. better than anyone else. They didn't interview. And if you're wondering where well, Harpo. Well, and, and law enforcement knew who he was. I mean, we yeah. hear these conversations where they're like, oh, yeah, 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 Harpo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, and if you're wondering, if you look at the map that I posted that shows the locations of everybody's neighbors, I should have put it on that map. But where Barbara Wright's house is labeled, directly across the street, you see a round house that looks like a dome. Mm-hmm. That's Harpo's house right there. Right there. Yeah. So it, it, it's, it's right on the way. Robert Ross. Uh, I uh, Kristen want to know about. I don't know if I. I remember seeing the name. I don't remember who Robert Ross was. I think he was one of the neighbors, but I don't think he was interviewed. Hmm. But I'm not positive about that. Okay, and then uh, Kristen also pointed out the the reference to the Paulsons' dogs barking and just kind of wondering if they could have been barking at a like a person or people leaving, you know, on foot or something like that. I I wondered that same thing because where they're at, they wouldn't be. Where, where the Paulson's house is, they wouldn't be on the route of a car. Depends on, I guess, depends on your dogs, how much they, you know, and, you know, how close a car has to be to their house before they would start barking. Um, And, and they're too far away. And the fire was just the only fire. Like, I see people in the YouTube chat trying to explain why nobody saw a car. Um, We'll get, and, I mean, that's, we got that in the follow up. Yeah. Too. And they, mm-hmm. and they, you know, they're, they're talking about like this big fire was illuminated. Well, it wasn't big at that point, particularly not in the front of the house. It was just coming out of that window. The only place it was visible was coming out of that window or vent above the garage. My point being with the dog, like, I don't think a dog's looking 350 yards up a hill and seeing that little flame coming out and barking. So it makes me wonder was somebody moving through that area on foot mm-hmm. when the dogs were barking? It's a really good question. Yeah. That's a really good question. Um, uh, visual storyteller, I see you say that uh, that Harpo was is out of town. Yeah, I don't. I'm not saying. I don't think we're saying he need to be spoken to because he might have been responsible. I think people are just saying I just he would have John perspective on the family and he was yeah. and had friendships with. Yeah. Um, cool, cool, cool. Okay. Uh, so I want to uh, address this really quickly because they've they're Rachel and and some other folks are asking, and I think reasonably based on kind of what we've understood about investigating and all of that um, about uh, Tim Summerley, just about kind of clearing him. Um, some way, maybe the way some of the law enforcement were were phrasing their questions for people like Jim caused them to just kind of want to confirm like so so tim was cleared the fact that he was sort of the you know first on the scene or the first to report or saying don't come back here stuff like that um doesn't strike you as suspicious or you know that he was cleared that he has nothing to do no, with the yeah, and I, as I, much I, as you know i'm glad you brought that up because i wanted because a few people on the facebook page which i mean i didn't get that at all but but, but a few people were like i think tim summerly sounds suspicious now no there's no Tim went up there and and tried to help. His wife confirmed that you know they were both home. They went up there together. You know, the, and the way it shook down. I mean, I went through like I went through the paces with him when I did. You know, they they pulled up. Now the way Tim said it was that um, Jim didn't want to go up because he was worried about the propane tank. Um, the way Jim said it 
was that Tim, and I think that's where the suspicions come in because the way Jim said it was that Tim said, well, you don't want to go up there because of the propane, but that's not the way Tim told me that story. Um, and it makes more sense to like, why would you say I'm going to go up here, but you don't cause there might be a propane tank. Um, I, I, I don't think that was the case. Um, but yeah, so, so Tim walks up, he's looks through the garage door. He's, he shouts out to see if anybody's available, looks up, sees Becky's body burning in the wheelbarrow. And he said, he came back and was like, Oh no, like this is a crime scene. There's a, there's a body burning outside. And then repeated that to the, uh, to, you know, to Jim that was on the scene. Right. Uh, and uh, shout out to to you, Tracy, in the chat. I see that too. I, you're asking about the Friedley's dogs, or I feel un, I feel sort of unresolved about them. Also, like I think the Sharon idea Coleman of, took them. I think she said she. Yeah. Took them. Well, not just so much who took them. I just just the idea of like who comes in. Are the dogs barking? No one hears that. Mm-hmm. Where that you know? At what point are they out of the house and just off somewhere? Are they trying to defend the family? It, I mean, I feel unresolved as well about kind of where they fit into it. I wish we knew more it. about the dog because there's not much talk about it. I mean, obviously they weren't in the house once the fire was really roaring, right? Um, so they were they. But got I mean, out. if they were, if someone's threatening the family and they they somehow toss the dogs out or whatever, then. Aren't the dogs going to be like potential, potentially barking to get back in or barking because something's wrong? Or are they just like they don't think anything's wrong? So they're just like running around in the desert exploring. Like, but, I just wish but I we knew also don't know more. about the dogs. We don't know where how their lives were lived. We don't know if they were outside. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Exactly. We don't, right. we don't know a lot about that. That's so just what I because wish I, yeah. the attack happened, regardless of who did the attack, just because the attack happened in the house or wherever doesn't mean the dogs were even present at that time. Right. Yeah, there's just there's too many Great unknowns, point. and I feel like you, Jan, I'm unresolved about it too. But it's because we have all these unknowns. Because you'd like to say, well, if the dogs were still alive, that maybe indicates they knew the offenders. They weren't, you know, trying to attack somebody. They didn't sense something was wrong. Maybe you know, there's all different kinds of scenarios you can think of. But like Zach said, they might not even been in there. Yeah, I wish we knew more. Uh, okay. Is there Heather wants to know is there a transcript of Tim's initial interview? It would help to perhaps nail down some times. Uh, if we can hear what he said when his memory was fresher. Um, yeah, I realized this weekend, I don't think I played my interview with Tim, but I don't I just I thought that I had. But I guess I never played his I don't think so. Police interview. Um, so I'll get that out, too, as a bonus sometime soon. So everybody can hear that along with transcripts, which I assume we have. Awesome. Okay. Uh, so let's return back. We talked about it a little bit. I believe it was last week. But Diane uh, brings up if you think Tim Summerley saw the fire through a vent in the attic and that it could have taken up to an hour for the fire to break through the ceiling. How does that affect when Becky might have been set on fire? It seems unlikely the suspects would have hung around for a long time after they set the house on fire. And I would just say, I don't know that it affects, I mean, it can't really affect when Becky was set on fire in terms of the physics of that. But it is a great question, Diane. Like, and we touched on it before, like, what is happening? If that fire gets set way earlier, what in heck is happening for that time between the house being set on fire and Becky being set on fire, that's yeah. when you stretch that time out, it becomes, you know, even more disturbing in a way. Yeah. And it, as you said, we know Becky was lit on fire sometime after 946 or at 946 or sometime after. Um, and that's the full for farthest limit we can go with her. So so the, the house fire doesn't affect when she was lit on fire. Um as far as what it means for the killers, I don't know. Like, so we're making some, you know, if it was an open window, then it could have happened in five minutes from the fire to get to you know where it was lit. 
And if there was gas poured directly in her bedroom, it could have been much quicker. There's there's a lot of unknowns here. If it's if it's a um, if it's a fire that had to breach the drywall into the attic, then it could be you know like I said that you're talking about a one hour firewall. But then the walls ha- would have half inch drywall, which is a half hour firewall. So it could go through the walls and up to um, a vent. But there should it, hopefully if it was built properly, there would be fire stops to stop that from happening too in the framing. Um, but there, there's a lot of unknowns here. But I think in any circumstance, it, it shows that Becky was dealt with after the fire was started. Well, after even if it's even if it's five, five, six, ten minutes, whatever. Um, that the fire, and that's part of what when when Jim looked at that and it was like, well, if, if Becky's the target and she's the reason they're there, and the other two are witnesses, she's not the afterthought. She's not the last thing to get handled. She gets handled first, and they would have put her inside the house with the other people, with the other two. Okay. Somebody, uh, Sarah, in the chat says Becky could have gone hiking alone. That's true. Becky also could have left. We don't know. You know, we we it, we we think we're pretty locked in on her shift didn't start till eleven o'clock. So that she maybe didn't start work until 11, but we don't know. I mean, she could have gotten her car and drove to Anza. She could have drove somewhere else and came back. She could have went for a ride. There's a lot of different scenarios that are out there. Right. Uh, Rachel says, in the first interview with Jim Ellis, did police ever get the phone records to see the time of his wife's call? Uh, Tara had a similar question, um, wondering if it could help corroborate the time of the fire a little bit more. I haven't seen any of their phone records. And Kristen says Ellis says he was focused on the garage door. This leads me to believe something was noticeable about the door. How could Tim look through it if Jim Ellis was focused on it? The way I took that was he was kind of blending together what Tim was saying and what he was saying that when Tim went up there, he was focused looking through the garage door and then he saw and then came back. I I don't I wasn't able to make sense of that. Mm. It was like kind of blending together. So I, I don't know the answer to it, but that's the way I took it was he was more referring to what Tim was focused on, which was looking through the garage door and that Tim maybe was telling him that I saw the body. I was looking through the garage door. I saw, you know what I mean? That that if that's where the conversation was going, it was it, it was a confusing part of it for sure. Gotcha. Uh, Jim says some neighbors mentioned hearing the ammunition rounds going off, presumably from the fire. Um, was it a few rounds, a couple dozen rounds? Um, and Kristen was wondering about sort of the significance of when, like how hot the fire has to be burning for the ammunition to go off, if that's like helpful information in any way. Uh, but Jim was also wondering if maybe the ammunition going off could have been uh, could have been gunshots that uh, that people interpreted to be the ammunition going off in the fire. But it seems like there's a distance, a pretty big distance between when they would have yeah, Becky. I mean, they heard the gunshots. And, they yeah. they heard the, not the gunshots. They heard the the rounds going off after like the house was already lit up and they Becky was already dead in the wheelbarrow. And they were up there, right? And we're kind of like, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to take yeah, a few steps back because we're starting to hear ammunition going. Yeah, on. I, I don't think anybody's in the house, you know, still shooting a gun at that point. Um, nobody ever says how many. I just got the impression that they were all they were hearing a lot of them. I I've been yeah. in many fires where this happens and it's it's pretty scary. Um, when you're crawling around inside the fire and it's happening. Oh my gosh! Of course. Um, uh, it's actually not as dangerous as people think because if the if the bullet is not in a compressed cylinder that only has one way to go out, then it doesn't actually 
shoot it'll you know go out a little bit but it's not going to like go like yeah it, it's definitely not what people think it is people yeah. people think that if it if it's there it's going to fire like it would shoot out of a gun and it it's doesn't. not at all i mean it's 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 taking all the gas is not being compressed behind the bullet it's just shooting out out and around now now like bob said the projectile will move but it's not to the extent of being fired out of a gun Gotcha. Right. I just realized I'm smiling because I realized that as soon as Bob started talking about uh, the guns and ammunition, I only looked over to Zach to make sure that Zach was yeah. agreeing <laughs> and was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's let Zach weigh in. <laughs> I've had them. Now, Zach is the expert, but I have definitely had them going off next to my head in a dresser drawer. Uh, yeah, so, that's not great. So it's, it's definitely I, I can see it being scary. I don't think it's as dangerous as people believe. I can yeah. see it being right. scary. It's definitely I mean, when a, a round goes off yeah. and it doesn't make quite the sound that people would believe either. The, the sound isn't the same discharge from a firearm. Yeah, it, it's like it, a pop. It's more of a pop. Yeah. Yeah. And I would also add that just crawling around in a fire sounds very scary to me. So it can be um, the uh, as far as the, the temperature, I think Zach's trying to look up what the temp, but it's 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 what. The temperature it is inside a house fire is plenty. I'll tell you that. You know, when when you have like a flashover conditions, you're talking two thousand degrees. Uh, so it's 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 plenty enough because it happens in fires all the time. This is about four hundred yeah. degrees. Yeah, and the, and by the way, ordinary combustible ignition temperature is four hundred fifty one degrees. So in order for something to be burning, the heat has to be at least to four fifty one, and that's you said four hundred mm-hmm. is when a bullet would go off. Okay. Well, let's spend some time talking about the sort of uh, conversations about escape routes and cars versus no cars, um, the red truck. Uh, I sort of saved the last chunk of questions and and grouped them together because um, I thought people were making some good points. And I, I would like to hear more from, from you about that. Um, folks, I'll start with Kristen. Uh, Barbara did not see any other cars as she drove home and watched the fire. What other street could the perps have driven down to get away if they were driving? Uh, where could they have stashed their car? I saw a good question in here that was similar in the chat. Sorry, I can't remember who said it uh, a couple minutes ago, but um, just still this question of and, and you know, I'm sure you're not surprised to hear this because you went out with a with a fairly big statement uh, at the end of the episode, which is if you're being objective, the fact that we're hearing that no one's we continue to hear that no one saw cars up to and including the folks that we heard from in this last episode, that that's very significant. And so people are pushing back on that, saying you say it's significant, but, you know, we still are wondering. And I'm not saying that that was you, Kristen, but, um, you know, just these questions, Jim and, and Kayla and Rhonda, folks are just still trying to fit their brains around how many routes there are to get to 74 from the Friedleys. And, and you know, if they turn right versus left, um, you touched on it a little bit, but if you could just talk about that a little bit more based on kind of everyone's questions about. So the the one thing that all routes have in common is they require travel down Alpine, either to the east where they could take Santa Barbara or Chilean Heights or all the way to Jeroboa, um, which would all go right by um, Barbara Wright's house. Uh, and then or they could go to the west and they could go down Palm Canyon. But either way, they've got to drive down that stretch of Alpine in in the pitch dark. And um, from there, they you know we're, we're we're getting beyond where the people that we just heard from would probably see. Well, they would see it. Like you would still see those headlights. Even even I mean, from Barbara Wright's house, you could see headlights driving down uh, Palm Canyon Drive, which is way over to the west off of the map that I that I created. But those are kind of the routes that anybody could take. Those kind of four you know, on Alpine down one of those four those four roads. As far as it's significant because 
for the people that are making the arguments, and there's, and you know, the YouTube chat was full of them a little bit ago of all the reasons why someone maybe didn't see headlights. Well, everybody's not looking out their window, or they, maybe they had their headlights off, uh, and there was a fire illuminating. Well, the fire the fire wasn't big enough to illuminate the street. There was trees between there from way down at where where Jim was at and where Tim was at. You know, they're looking up the hill towards it, but just to the road, there's trees in the front yard for the that would block that. And it, most of the fire was in the back of the house, other than the little bit that was coming out that window or vent. Um, it's significant because if we're looking at, now let's step back to how we do things, right? We go back to ground zero and we look at what proof do we have? What evidence do we have to show that these guys are guilty? My question to anybody, to everyone, what evidence shows someone left that house in a car? That's the question that should matter. What evidence is there? You can come up with a million scenarios and how you can try to wedge it in to fit your narrative. But what evidence is there that someone left in a car? The answer is zero. I, I'm going to say I, this is not evidence that somebody left that scene, but we do have evidence of a vehicle trying to leave the neighborhood. Right. And that is the, that's the only piece of evidence we have of a vehicle moving at that point. Right. And that's way down at the south end of the neighborhood and also not Robert or Christian's vehicle. Um, but what I was going to say is that I'm not saying there absolutely was no car that left the scene. What I'm saying is there's no evidence that a car left the scene. So I can't assume a car left the scene because no one can show me any evidence that that happened. If I see evidence that it happened, then okay, somebody left in a car. But that's that's the issue. That's why it's significant because we should be looking at what the evidence shows us. And the evidence does not show us that someone left the house in a vehicle, period. You can, you, you can, you can say that there are scenarios where that would work. Where someone could have, I won't. I won't disagree that someone could have. I'm just saying, what's the evidence that they did? Right. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic. When I can, I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Oh, uh, the couple of folks had pointed out, well, you know, but some, but there were cars. Like, they're, to not, for, for people to have said they didn't see a car... What about people like Barbara, who we know were coming home and like this sort of coming and going? Uh, I think Sarah pointed out that we sort of hear from, you know, Jim about once the fire's going, we hear about neighbors 
getting in their car and driving up to the scene, and then maybe they drive back down to their house and pick up their spouse and drive back up. If if that counts as like cars driving, then why isn't anyone who isn't the person who's driving the car saying, "I saw a car," well, you know, no. coming from the direction of Jim Ellis's house, going up to Babylon? In the state's theory, Robert and Christian were leaving the house at nine forty six. So. Barbara, we have, so no one we have we have no reports or anything that anyone drove past the crime scene anytime before that or after that. the first the first one we have is you know nine fifty one when Barbara calls nine one one Tim Summerlee nobody's up there yet right. they get there they get there after that um and and I think Montana in the YouTube chat just said well to kind of counter my point that there's no evidence that a car didn't leave the scene. The difference there, and I don't disagree, but the difference is there. You're talking about proving a negative or proving a positive. I can't, there's, it's impossible to prove a negative. I can't say that. So all I can look at is there evidence that something did happen, and there isn't evidence that something did happen, which still leaves the possibility that it happened, but there's no evidence to show that it happened. And the, and there's a lot of factors that that play play into this. Like I said, even if, as some people have suggested. They were the, – the killers left in a vehicle and had their lights off. I maintain that's impossible. You know, and somebody is like, well, if the fire wasn't illuminating, then nobody would call it. The fire is visible coming out of that vent or window. That doesn't mean there's so much fire that it's lighting up the road beyond the trees, right? Those are two different things. Even if someone has their headlights off, they still have brake lights, that are going to come on every time they, they, they touch the brake when they're making a turn or anything. And again, and if you've never been in a place of absolute desolation and, and darkness, I don't know that you can really grasp how easy that is to see. Right. Now, do I wish that the police went to every single person in that whole neighborhood and canvassed like they should have and asked everyone if they saw a car? Absolutely. And then we might have a better answer. Right now, I can I can when, for my investigation, I can only look at the the information and evidence that we have, and so I went out looking for evidence that someone left the scene in a car and found none, and I'm still not overstating that. I'm still not saying that means no one left in a car. I'm just saying there's no evidence to show that anyone left in a car, and then we have other factors that that play into things. For example, like we just talked about, you know, Randy Paulson's dogs barking. What are they barking at? When nobody's, right. you know, nobody's driving past his house. Well, I wonder if an, if an escape route could have been down that, that Chilton Hill to Zurich to Palm Canyon or whatever that road is called. Because those connect as well. And it goes it right past been. Randy Paulson's house. a weird route, but it's possible. Well, if you don't know where you're going. Yeah. And you're just turning down roads. Mm -hmm. It does connect. Yeah. So there's possible. And it's possible because... Tim Summerlee's house was behind him on the next road. Maybe, you know, Tim stirring up and Jim Ellis coming out. Maybe that got the dogs going. There's all kinds of possibilities. Yeah. I mean, the dogs thing, I'm I'm interested in the dogs thing. I think that was a great point to bring up. But I also live in a neighborhood where there are just dogs who bark because they're bored. Like, they're, I swear there's nothing going on because the dog is barking for like three hours and they just are dogs that bark because they're outside and they're bored. <laughs> so it's just hard to say, or there's a coyote or there's right. a skunk or there's a, you know, like could be any number of things. Yeah. Could cause I'm not saying bark, that so means someone, wouldn't pin that on. Yeah. someone was out there and by foot, but it's just something to consider. Um, and Laura, Laura in the chat says, 
Barbara saw the fire only when she went upstairs in her house. Um, did I miss that? I, I thought she said she was standing on her porch when she saw the fire. Uh, I would need to go back and listen to be a hundred percent certain. Does that ring a bell to anybody? I mean, the, no, the I remember her talking about the smell and then going and then maybe she did say that she went up to the second floor. That actually does kind of sound familiar, but that's not, that's not helpful. enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. sounds familiar. I just, I just, <laughs> I just, so have, I have in my mind, and I'm not saying you're wrong, Laura. I just have in my mind that she said she was standing on her porch. Yeah. When she saw. Well, I think that's one of the things that's come up. Um, around this idea of of where the the fire is coming from. I think some of us are still kind of trying to grapple with exactly what the fire looked like and how much flame there was, because we hear from some neighbors like there were these huge flames in the air and like it was unmissable because, you know, there was they were ablaze. And I don't think we I don't know that we I think that that's why the timeline that Sarah asked about is interesting too. this just trying to understand where how much of the fire people saw at different times of the fire. So the people some, there, we know there are some neighbors who witnessed it much more engulfed. And we also know about the neighbors that saw a little, but when you, the, the way that you've put this, I, the, the, the flames coming through the vent um, almost sounds like they're almost in like, just like flickering a little bit out of the vent. And no, that's no, no, never that's how I've understood. Yeah. No, it was the way I understood it from the way Tim described it to me was, when he looked at the portion of the house that was above the garage, kind of in that peak, he could see flames shooting out of that window. Like you know, okay. I'm imagining a two foot wide by six foot tall flame coming out of that right. window is what I picture the way he described it to me. Okay. And we still don't know if it was a vent or a window. No. Yeah. Uh, Wes says, when you were up in Pinion Pines, did you take pictures from the areas where people from where people lived? I thought this was a great question. I kind of wish we would have been able to do this. But um, pictures from the areas where people lived pointed towards the crime scene to see what sort of views they had. Looking from the overhead shots, it looks like there's a good amount of bushes and trees between the properties. Would this have restricted views? You just mentioned this, Bob, without knowing that this question had been asked by Wes. Would this have restricted the views of the road up on Alpine? I would expect people would have been focused on the flames rather than on the road at this point. Um, going back to, again, the idea that they don't know to look out for a car. And someone, I think, in the chat even said, like, maybe a car is a common enough occurrence that you're just you sort of muted out of your mind as you're paying attention to something that's more significant or strange. Yeah, and that that's possible. But the, the, that's what why I I tend to think that someone would point out that, you know, and at the time when I saw the fire, I saw a car driving away. Right. Because it's because mostly because. There is no traffic up there. Right. There's, there's what, four or five houses on that entire road. Right. Uh, and Coleman's not home. Harpo's not home. So that leaves three houses on the entire road. So there's, they're, they're not used to seeing cars driving up there. It would be, it, it you know, it would be, in a, especially at that time of night, I think it would be kind of an odd occurrence for a car to be driving. And particularly, it would stand out to me. And we got to be careful always of saying what you know, what I would do, Mm -hmm. but, oh my God, there's a fire. Something's happened. And I saw a car driving away. That's significant. And I think that it would because of the darkness, a a car driving away, even with the headlights off would stand out. Right. Uh, Sorry. There's so much happening in the chat, but there's also so much in my thing. And I know that we're um, we're going to have to wrap up. So uh, I just have one final question. Well, very quickly, um, Valeria, I, I thought this was really interesting. Could the famous red truck have been one of the neighbors trying to flag down the fire truck rather than someone playing chicken? And just Tony and Janiya wanted to just also further confirm, like, again, none of the neighbors 
said that they could identify what who that truck could have been or you know if they were indeed even asked. Yeah, no. And I saw people saying, well, I think it was Jim Ellis said his truck was green, so maybe they mistake green for red. And I, no, I, I don't think any of that's possible. Uh, Williams, Jeff Williams, like gave a pretty detailed account of looking down right into the car and seeing the mm-hmm. bed as it went past him. Right. I think if it turned around and then got in front of him and guided him up there well, or course, someone yeah. saw it at the house, that would – his his right. what he said was it sped right past him and continued the other direction. Right. So, yeah, I don't see how it's any of the neighbors. And with that, we do have a hard out. I've got an appointment here in 14 yeah. minutes All uh, right. that i got to get ready for. I know you had a hard out today too, Janet. So we're going to go ahead and wrap up the talk here. We'll continue it on Facebook if anybody wants to keep chatting about it. Um, thank you so much for the for the chat, everybody, and YouTube, and everybody for engaging. Make sure you tune in on Sunday because we have a oh, I'm sure everyone will. A, I'm yeah. very yeah. interested yeah, in what's coming on Sunday. All about that sector data, and I'm excited to actually be able to talk about it and explain it um, this week. So it'll be in two days on Sunday. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you again next week. Thanks, everyone. Bye, guys. Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Edited by Kelly Barron's Brink, and all music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by me, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Woodyomnick, Ginger Viola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. For all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found in all forms at Bob Ruff Truth. Janet can be found at Janet Varney. And Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. As for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Janet Varney. And this has been Truth and Justice.
I just realized that I wrote like this week twice to start a sentence, like two sentences back to back. And then I'm like, oh, that fuck. You are a dirty, dirty mouth person. Chet, pop out. You're going to drop it like it's hot. We don't have to look away. I was doing the throat thing where you like have it on your throat and you're doing the. the... Test, 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 test. Uh... Wait, what'd you say? What? Don't worry about it. <laughs> oh, I think I just broke something. Ahoy, friends. God damn. <laughs> Bob, we're live. We're coming to you live, Bob. When's, when's the show start? <laughs> when are we going to start the show, guys? How's that sound? Does that sound better? I don't get it. Oh, yeah. You look like a, an orange on a toothpick as I'm looking at my sweaty self in the mirror. Zach found a special way to lose five pounds in a week. I wish you would stop saying hard out, by the way. 